to the Hemingway List podcast for Book 9, Chapter 3. The Russians are busy pretending there is no impending war and seem determined to distract Emperor Alexander with parties. Is this procrastination to be expected? Do you think there are any generals taking the threat seriously? Ah, uh, surely there are some. You've got your Kutuzovs. Kutuzovs always pretty switched on. He's not one to get distracted by parties and that kind of thing. Uh, but we haven't heard much from Kutuzov in a while, have we? Kutuzov. Remember Kutuzov? He was like a massive part of this book. <laughs> like a whole chunk. We just haven't heard from him. He was the, what was he, commander-in-chief. Um... Boris, always hustling, makes sure to hear whatever news there is to hear, and in so doing, makes himself seem more in the know among his peers. Do you think his tenacity will get him any further now that he's seemingly climbed as high as he possibly could? And Alexander demands no peace with the French so long as a single-armed Frenchman remained on Russian soil. Do you think he will come to eat these words? All right, yeah, well, things are getting interesting, that's for sure. The French have essentially invaded. Um, and all the while kind of insisting that it's peacetime. You know, they're like hopping the fence and and you know, breaking in to the Russians' home and going, yeah, hey, how good's this peace we're having? Oh, don't mind me, I'm just, just, no, I'm not doing anything. I'm not coming onto your land. And all the while they're just kind of making their way into Russia. Weird move. Ripster 66 says the Russians seem to be taking Napoleon's empty gestures at peace on face value and ignoring any possibility of war. They sure love throwing balls and living well, don't they? It says more about class and how the aristocracy ran the military than it does about the actual military tactics, or lack thereof. Boris is going to hustle no matter how far up he goes. It's in his blood. Yeah, isn't it? Will his reach exceed his grasp? I don't know, but he's certainly one of the most ambitious and motivated characters in the book. Alexander seems rather proud of his pithy comment and not really thinking about what that actually means for his troops. I wouldn't be surprised if this comment came back to haunt him, if only because he will feel he cannot back down from it. Twisted Every Way says, I love that the French were sneaking across the river while the Russians were partying. Boris has actually... Done well for himself. Pays off marrying well, I guess. <clears throat> guess. <coughs> oh, God, excuse me. Just got like the hiccups in the middle of that word. Four lost souls in a bowl says, I know historically how this all ends, but I don't have the slightest idea as to the ins and outs that will lead to the finale. Now I'm reading while holding my breath because I feel like I've got the hiccups. Oh, not the hiccups. It's a hiccup day, guys. <clears throat> it's a hiccup day. It's a hiccup day. Awesome. Awesome. Twisted Every Way has also posted something about the fact that we're coming up to the halfway mark of the book at the end of this month, to be precise. So that's exciting. There's a thread on the subreddit about that if you want to go and have a chat about the fact that we're nearly halfway. Go and find that post by uh, Twisted Every Way and, and have a chit-chat. 
We'll probably do something on the podcast and in the daily threads as well to mark the halfway occasion. But for now, I'm going to try to read chapter 4 without hiccuping too much. And um, if I hiccup all the way through this, I do apologise. There's not much I can do about it though. Because uh, i got to go to work in the morning. I could pause, you know, the podcast and come back later and finish it, but i got to go to bed. So, I'm going to hiccup my way through it. Although, I have just spoken for like a minute without a hiccup, so, you know, that's a good sign. Let's go. Chapter 4. At 2 in the morning of the 14th of June, the Emperor, having sent for Belashev and read him his letter to Napoleon, ordered him to take it and hand it personally to the French Emperor. When dispatching Balashev, the Russian repeated to him the words that he would not make peace so long as a single armed enemy remained on Russian soil, and told him to transmit those words to Napoleon. Alexander did not insert them in his letter to Napoleon because, with his characteristic tact, he felt it would be injudicious to use them at a moment when a last attempt at reconciliation was being made but he definitely instructed Balashev to repeat them personally to Napoleon. Having set off in the small hours of the 14th, accompanied by a bugler and two Cossacks, Balashev reached the French outpost at the village of Riconti, on the Russian side of the Nîmes, by dawn. There, was, there he was stopped by French cavalry sentinels. A French non-commissioned officer of hussars in crimson uniform and a shaggy cap shouted to the approaching Balashev to halt. Balashev did not do so at once, but continued to advance along the road at a walking pace. The non-commissioned officer frowned, and muttering words of abuse advanced his horse's chest against Balashev, put his hand to his sabre and shouted rudely at the Russian general, asking, was he deaf that he did not do as he was told? Balashev mentioned who he was. The non-commissioned officer began talking with his comrades about regimental matters without looking at the Russian general. After living at the seat of the highest authority and power, after conversing with the emperor less than three hours before, and in general being accustomed to the respect due to his rank in the service, Balashev found it very strange here on Russian soil to encounter this hostile and still more than disrespectful, more than this disrespectful application of brute force to himself. The sun was only just appearing from behind the clouds, the air was fresh and dewy, a herd of cattle was being driven along the road from the village, and over the fields the larks rose trilling, one after another, like bubbles rising in water. Balashev looked around, awaiting the arrival of an officer from the village, the Russian Cossacks and Bugler and the French Hussars looked silently at one another from time to time. The French Colonel of Hussars, who had evidently just left his bed, came riding from the village on a handsome, sleek grey horse, accompanied by two hussars. The officer, the soldiers and their horses all looked smart and well kept. It was the first period of a campaign when troops are still in full, oops, sorry, still in full trim, almost like that of a peacetime, of peacetime manoeuvres, but with a shade of martial swagger in their clothes and a touch of gaiety and spirit of enterprise which always accompany the opening of a campaign. The French colonel, with difficulty, repressed a yawn, but was polite and evidently understood Balashev's importance. He led him past his soldiers and behind the outposts and told him that his wish to be presented to the emperor would most likely be satisfied immediately, and the emperor's quarters were, he believed, not far off. 
<clears throat> they rode through the village of Riconti, past tethered French who saw horses, past sentinels and men who saluted their colonel and stared with curiosity at a Russian uniform and came out at the other end of the village. The colonel said that the commander of this division was a mile and a quarter away and would receive Balashev and conduct him to his destination. The sun had by now risen and shone gaily on the bright verdure. They had hardly ridden up a hill past a tavern before they saw a group of horsemen coming toward them. In front of the group, on a black horse with trappings that glittered in the sun, rode a tall man with plumes in his hat and black hair curling down to his shoulders. He wore a red mantle and stretched his long legs forward in French fashion. This man rode toward Balashev at a gallop, his plumes flowing and his gems and gold lace glittering in the bright June sunshine. Balashev was only two horses' length from the equestrian, with the bracelets, plumes, necklaces and gold embroidery, who was galloping toward him with the theatrically, with a theatrically solemn countenance. When Julna, the French colonel, whispered respectfully, the King of Naples. It was, in fact, Murat, now called the King of Naples, though it was quite incomprehensible why he should be King of Naples. He was called so, and was himself convinced that he was so, and therefore assumed a more solemn and important air than formerly. He was so sure that he really was the King of Naples that when, on the eve of his departure from that city, walking, while walking through the streets with his wife, some Italians called out to him, Viva, le Re, Viva il Re, long live the King. He turned to his wife with a pensive smile and said, Poor fellows, they don't know that I am leaving them tomorrow. But though he firmly believed himself to be the King of Naples and pitied the grief felt by the subjects he was abandoning, latterly, after he had been ordered to return to military service and especially since his last interview with Napoleon in Danzig, when his august brother-in-law had told him, I made you king that you should reign in my way but not in yours, he had cheerfully taken up his familiar business, and, like a well-fed but not over-fat horse that feels himself in harness and grows skittish between the shafts, he dressed up in clothes as variegated and expensive as possible, and gaily and contentedly galloped along the roads of Poland, without himself knowing why or whither. On seeing the Russian general, he threw back his head with its long hair curling to his shoulders in a majestically royal manner, and looked inquiringly at the French colonel, the colonel respectfully informed His Majesty of Balashev's mission, whose name he could not pronounce. De Balmachiv, said the king, overcoming by, by his assurance the difficulty that had presented itself to the colonel. Charmed to make your acquaintance, general, he added with a gesture of kingly condescension. As soon as the king began to speak loud and fast, his royal dignity instantly forsook him, and without noticing it he passed into his natural tone of good-natured familiarity, he laid his hand on the withers of Balashev's horse and said, Well, General, it all looks like war, as if regretting a circumstance of which he was unable to judge. Your Majesty, replied Balashev, my master the Emperor does not desire war, and as Your Majesty sees, said Balashev, using the words Your Majesty at every opportunity, with the affectation of unavoidable in frequently addressing one to whom the title was still a novelty. Murat's face beamed with stupid satisfaction as he listened to Monsieur de Balmachiv, but royalty has its obligations, and he felt it incumbent on him as a king and an ally to confer on state affairs with Alexander's envoy. He dismounted, 
took Balashev's arm and, moving a few steps away from his suite, which waited respectfully, began to pace up and down with him, trying to speak significantly. He preferred to the fact that the em- he referred to the fact that the Emperor Napoleon had resented the demand that he should withdraw his troops from Prussia, especially when that demand became generally known and the dignity of France was thereby offended. Balashev's reply was that there was nothing offensive in the demand because, but interrupted, Murat interrupted him. Then you don't consider the Emperor Alexander the aggressor, he asked unexpectedly, with a kindly and foolish smile. Balashev told him why he considered Napoleon to be the originator of the war. Oh, my dear general, Murat again interrupted him. With all my heart, I wish the emperors may arrange the affair between them, and that the war began by no wish of mine may finish as quickly as possible, said he, in the tone of a servant who wants to remain good friends with another despite a quarrel between their masters. And he went on to the inquiries about the Grand Duke and the state of his health and the reminiscences of the gay and amusing times he had spent with him in Naples. Then suddenly, as if remembering his royal dignity, Murat solemnly drew himself up, assumed the pose in which he had stood in at his coronation and waving his right arm said, I won't detain you any longer. General, I wish success to your mission and with his embroidered red mantle, his flowing feathers and his glittering ornaments, he rejoined his suite, who were respectfully awaiting him. Balashev rode on, supposing from Murat's words that he would very soon be brought before Naples, Napoleon himself. But instead of that, at the next village, the sentinels of Devout's infantry corps detained him as the pickets of the vanguard had done, and an adjutant of the corps of command, commander, who was fetched, conducted him into the village to Marshal Daval. Alright, there we go. A little bit of a Murat action. Murat is an f- awesome character who I think, well, very underutilised in this book, but he's just... Napoleon is, you know, the most grandiose person to have ever lived, maybe. Second only to Murat, who was his right-hand man, who just had to be more glamorous than Napoleon. (laughs) You know, he wasn't as important as Napoleon, but he was more glamorous. And I think that's really, really funny and interesting. All right, have your say about that one over on the subreddit. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.